0: Well, if you have a Bible, could you take it and turn to Matthew chapter 28? Matthew twenty-eight? Matthew twenty-eight—that's the the first book in the New Testament and the last chapter of it. Matthew twenty-eight. I don't know if you remember this, but our twenty-twenty Easter service happened on YouTube. <laughs> what a difference a year makes! But in the, in the wake of all that's happened since the last time that we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus on an Easter Sunday, and in light of the baptism that we get to celebrate at the end of this service, I have three hopes, three hopes for our time in God's Word today. Let me state them long-windedly first, and then succinctly. <laughs> uh, long-windedly. Number one, I want us to, to just remember the miracle of Easter. I just want us to pause and recall the first Easter morning and think about that day. Second, I want us to reflect on how the resurrection of Jesus connects to and then resolves two of the most pressing concerns in our world, especially within the past world, the past year, namely death and division how resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus deals with the death and division that we see in our world. And then third, in conjunction with that, I want us to rejoice in how the work of Christ pictured in baptism announces the miracles of life and unity in a person and in the people of God. Uh, people of God. Miracles that, that press against death and division. That was the long-winded version. Here's those three points that we'll be walking through today. So in other words, number one, remember the resurrection miracle of Easter. Number two, reflect on the resurrection's solution to death and division. And number three, rejoice in the resurrection's results of life and unity. We're going to go back through those. So if you didn't get them all down, don't worry. But the first one is remember the resurrection miracle of Easter. Remember, reflect, and rejoice. Those are kind of our key words. Those are things that they could be a good summary of what uh, any holiday or special occasion calls us to do. We are uh, usually commemorating some past event, so we take time to remember it. Uh, We pause and we reflect on its meaning in the present. And with most holidays, we rejoice. We celebrate the meaning of that specific day. So think about a birthday. It's a time to remember, to remember the day that you or someone else was born. It's a time to reflect on the the year of life that has passed and the year of life that's coming, and it's a time to rejoice in the gift of life. Remember, reflect, and rejoice. That's what we did on Good Friday, uh, and it's what we're going to do today. So as we gather at this time of year, uh, each year, and think about the resurrection of Jesus, it's, it's interesting that sometimes we can actually move into thinking about the results of the resurrection and inadvertently fail to read one of the four gospel accounts of the resurrection. And I... I always think it's just a good re- Easter is just a good time to pause and hear that story once more. And so remember the resurrection miracle of Easter. And I just want to read from Matthew 28. This is a familiar passage for many of us, but may we hear it as if for the first time and also like a child that is hearing their favorite book for the 101st time. This is what God's word says in Matthew 28. Now, after the sabbath And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's good to read that story. And it's good to say, I believe it. <laughs> I believe that this is true history. A couple of truths to, from the narrative to draw your attention to. First, consider that there are those who are rightly fearful and there are those who do not need to be afraid. There are those who are rightly fearful And there are those that do not need to be afraid. You could make an argument that fear is the key word of verses 1 through 10. In verse 4, we're we're told that the guards at the tomb of Jesus were so fearful that they trembled and became like dead men. Their fear was not unfounded an earthquake had shaken the earth, presumably in the early morning hours when it was still dark, and an angel of the Lord had come out of heaven and rolled away this huge stone from the entrance of the tomb. There was a sound like thunder, and an angel appeared looking like lightning, filling the darkness with blinding brightness. I don't know about you, but I think I would have been scared as well. And these men, these these Roman soldiers, in seeking to keep Jesus in the tomb and to keep his disciples away from the tomb, were acting in opposition to the will of God. So they had every reason to be afraid. Based on other gospel accounts, it would seem that it was not many hours later, not at the same time, but sometime later, that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary arrived at the tomb. The account of the angel's initial arrival in verses 2 through 4 Seems to be sandwiched between the arrival of these women, revealing the, the contrast of these two scenes. There in the early morning light, they saw not the initial appearance of the angel, but the aftermath of it. The, the soldiers are gone, and the stone is, is rolled away. And there's the angel. He's, he's still there, and what's he doing? He's sitting on top of the stone. I'm not sure what to to make of that exactly. He's not standing next to the tomb or inside the tomb. He's sitting right there on top of the stone. It's almost comical. It's, 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 It's like he's saying that the idea of a rock keeping Jesus inside the tomb was the funniest joke that he'd ever heard. While the soldiers had every right to be afraid, the angel of the Lord tells the Marys not to fear because he knows that they have come looking for Jesus. That's the reason not to be scared. Don't be afraid because I know that you've come looking for Jesus. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? That everyone who comes looking for Jesus, not trying to keep him silent and buried, not trying to deny him, those folks who come looking for him don't need to be afraid. Everyone who comes in humility and in faith to find Jesus receives mercy from God. And the power of God is not against them, but the power of God is working for their good. The angel explains what the shocked women are looking at. He tells them, Jesus is gone. Why? Because he has risen, which they should have known because he told them. He told his followers this over and over again. But for now, the important thing was that Jesus was going into Galilee and he was going to meet his disciples there. So off they went in fear and joy, only to be quickly stopped. I'm, I'm sure at first they felt a bit inconvenienced. You know, they had... Uh, this, this stranger offers them a hearty greeting, but they had important news to deliver. They had a destination to get to, and they didn't have time to stop and talk to strangers. Of course, it wasn't a stranger, was it? It was Jesus. And immediately they worship him and they bow at his feet. And they're again told, this time by Jesus himself, he says it too, he says, do not fear. Don't be afraid anymore. Verse 8 tells us that they, they were still a little bit afraid. They were joyful, but they were also still a little scared, and so they needed to hear this command again. For days they had been nothing but, but heartbroken and scared, disappointed and angry, but resurrection has a way of, of changing things. An angel from heaven sitting on top of a rolled away stone and the risen Jesus himself had both told them not to be afraid and then sent them to deliver that same message to the disciples in the upper room. So there are those who are rightly fearful, and there are those who do not need to be afraid. Which group are you in? A second truth from Matthew 28. There are those who suppress the truth and spread lies, and there are those called to proclaim the truth and speak life. There are those who suppress the truth. That's what Paul says, right? Right? In Romans 1, there are those who suppress the truth, they press it down and spread lies. But there are also those that are called to proclaim the truth and speak life. I think the contrast between these two groups is in verses 11 through 15 and then in verses 16 through Twenty In verses 11 through 15, we're back with the guards who have reported all that happened there in the garden tomb to the chief priests. They, they give an eyewitness account. Think about this. They are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus in some ways, aren't they? And they give an account of this to the chief priests. And the response of the power-hungry, Jesus-denying religious leaders is to believe. No. It's to pay them off and tell them to spread lies. Just as they had rejected the words of Jesus before they killed him, they now rejected the witness of the new life of Jesus after he had risen. And the soldiers, greedy for money perhaps, or fearful of what might happen to them for having failed to properly guard the tomb, or maybe both, they gladly take the money and spread the lie. Whether greedy for power or money, whether prideful or focused on self-preservation, whether jealous of God's glory or preoccupied with immediate consequences, our human hearts will naturally suppress the truth of God and exchange the truth of God for a lie. Proclaiming to be wise and smart, we reveal that we are fools that will deny the truth even when, it, when it's as plain as the nose on our faces or as clear as an angel sitting on top of a tombstone. But, if God in his grace would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe, then we can be not those who suppress the truth and spread lies, but that second group, those who proclaim the truth and speak life. That's what the women did. They brought the good news to the disciples and the disciples, though a bit fearful and doubting, still went to Galilee and there Jesus met them and commissioned them. He called them to proclaim the salvation and resurrection life that is available to everyone who believes in him. He called his disciples not to spread lies, but to make disciples and to teach them the truth of everything that he had said. To announce that the kingdom was open to the poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungry and thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers and the persecuted. To announce that all who repent and believe can become children of God and eternal members of God's eternal kingdom. And he told them, as they were telling people, to also baptize everyone who wanted to follow Jesus, symbolizing their identity with Jesus Christ, proclaiming that they were dead to sin and had been raised to walk in a new life centered on the glory of God, on loving God and loving others. Friends, remember this. Remember this story, the the resurrection miracle of Easter, a miracle that gives followers of Jesus a reason not to fear. And also, a truth to proclaim, a truth that announces life to everyone who believes. These ideas then lead us to ask what does Easter say to our hearts and to our world today? To reflect a little bit. And to answer that question, let's reflect on the resurrection's solution to death and division. That's our second big thought here. Reflect on the resurrection's solution to what? To death and division. there have been over a half a million deaths attributed to COVID-19 in the United States and nearly 3 million deaths worldwide. The past year has been one that's been marked by death. But of course, isn't there a sense in which every year is marked by death? Every moment of every day in this fallen world is marked by death. It's the great equalizer and the great enemy of we who are mortal and sinful. So there is a a fear of death that we find in our hearts, like the the fear of death that we saw in King Hezekiah last week. You remember that? He was told that his time had come. God was kind, extended his life by 15 years. But he eventually died, as we all will. However, Easter announces that death will not have the final word. So today in a year marked by death and in a, in a world unable to escape death, we are reminded the resurrection of Jesus can defeat death. The resurrection of Jesus can defeat death. Imagine a world with no death. I recently rewatched the movie Groundhog Day where Bill Murray's character had, lives the same day February 2nd over and over and over and over again and not even death keeps him from waking up in the same bed and breakfast to Sonny and shares, I've got you babe on the radio every morning <laughs> he was immortal for a little bit that seems impossible to us doesn't it and yet we know that death was not a part of the world that God originally created we were we were made to to live forever And eternity is still in our hearts. Death has entered into the world as a result of sin, just as God told Adam and Eve it would. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Our sin separates us from God. We were not only made to live forever, but to live forever in fellowship with our creator. And yet sin has brought death into every part of our lives. As we think about death, we could say as we did about the the first Easter morning that there are those who are rightly fearful of death and there are those who do not need to be afraid. If we remain in our sins, then death still has power over us, the power to kill us physically and the power to separate us from God eternally. But if we repent of our sins and rest in the work of Jesus, he defeats death and he defeats the fear of it. He has died in our place, taking his sin on himself and he has risen. Death could not hold him, Peter said and he offers us the hope of rising with him. Unless Christ returns in our lifetime, we will all physically die. But even in the midst of that truth, the sting of death is gone if we have been born again. The victory of the grave is no more if we have been given new spiritual life through faith in Jesus. If we fear physical death, and if, if the fear of Physical death and spiritual death are gone. If the Lord is on our side, then brothers and sisters whose hope is in the resurrected Jesus, there is no fear of death in any way. And not just physical death, but any death that would come into our lives. Because our Savior has defeated death. Jesus' resurrection announces that God will take all the evil and all the sin and all the death in our world and in our lives, and he's going to turn it for good. Now, just because the fear of death is, is gone doesn't mean that we don't wrestle a little bit with the fear of death still. I'm not sure if you notice this around your house, but around our house, it's the season for carpenter bees. We have some wood and the, those, they love to go and chew on everything, you know. We have a, a few every year that hover around the back gate. Kids, you remember this, right? They're always at that one spot. They love that spot. And every year I tell my children, they they won't sting you. And then I tell myself as I walk past them, they're not going to sting you because Google told me that carpenter bees don't sting you. (laughs) But I still am a little uncomfortable because they're big and they buzz loud. (laughs) The sting of death is gone, but it still buzzes really loud in our world, doesn't it? And there's certainly sorrow and pain that death brings. But even better than Google, you know what scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 15? It says, death is swallowed up in victory. So we can say, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6 tells us that death has no dominion over Jesus because he has risen in victory over it, And so if we are in Jesus, death has no dominion over us. No sin or evil, no power of hell or scheme of man, no sorrow or heartache, no disaster, no pandemic rules over us fully and finally because Jesus is risen and we will rise on the last day. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight, tears lose their bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory, I triumph still, if thou abide with me. The resurrection of Jesus can defeat death, and also the resurrection of Jesus can defeat division. It can defeat division amongst people. If we think about life in the past year, other than death and disease, the thing on everyone's mind is division whether racism or classism or political polarization, we have been reminded that the sin in us has made us enemies of one another. It took only one generation before sin led to a jealousy so strong that Cain killed his brother Abel. And we have been finding reasons to divide from one another and kill each other ever since. As we think about the way the resurrection is the solution to division, we could say, as we said earlier that there are those who suppress the truth and spread lies, and there are those called to proclaim the truth and speak life. There are all kinds of lies and half-truths surrounding the issue of division and unity in our world. Some of them, I think, well-intentioned. But underlying them all, there would seem to be a denial of the fact that a supernatural rebirth and resurrection is the only thing that can defeat division between people in our world. And in place of trust in the supernatural work of God to do what only he can, we hear a message that there is some inherent good in people, some, some ability that we have to bring peace and reconciliation apart from God, apart from the new birth. Now, by God's common grace, can progress be made in getting rid of racism or division of the different kinds? Yes. Is God's image still in in human beings such that we are moved to compassion and towards kindness towards one another. We are. Boy, that was, did I say something? It's just, everybody got upset for a moment. Let me say that again. By God's common grace, can we make progress um, in in healing division? Yes, we can. And, And is God's image still in human beings so much so that we are moved to compassion and kindness towards one another? Yes, it happens every day, but those are all acts of God's grace themselves. And the truth that we proclaim and the new life that we speak of the gospel is the only full and ultimate solution to all of the hatred and all of the racism and all of the, all of the division in this world. Nothing else will solve it other than the gospel. Ephesians two thirteen through 16 tells us that it's, it's only as we are united to Christ that division can really be solved. Paul writes to Jews and Gentiles who hated each other and had hated each other for generations, and this is what he says. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. We are not our peace, Jesus is our peace. Who has, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus that kills hostility and brings unity. And as those who, who long for a day when every tribe and tongue and people and nation are gathered around the throne of Jesus, we proclaim the truth of the gospel and the new life that's found through faith in Jesus. A new life that has implications, not only for us as individuals, but for us as a community. There's a, a unity that we have as people created in the image of God. But there is a deeper unity that comes through faith in Jesus, and it reminds us that only resurrection can defeat division. We are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are the family of faith. God is our Father. We are new creations and dwelt by the same Spirit. And with resurrection life at the center of our unity, there's no room for division. There's no room for hatred. There's this longing to be one in Christ. That's the message that we proclaim. It's this message of life and love and unity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus compels us to make disciples, compels us to teach all people what he has said. And the gospel message that we proclaim is the solution to two of the greatest things that people are worried about in our day, death and division. It's the only thing that can defeat death. It's the only thing that can ultimately bring unity and defeat division. This is the solution. Why would we not boldly proclaim this in our world? Why would we not tell others that Jesus has conquered death and can bring unity that nothing else can? Some will suppress this truth. Some will spread lies, even about us. But by God's grace, some will repent. Some will believe. So having remembered the resurrection miracle reflected on its solution to death and division, we now very briefly rejoice in the resurrection's results. And what are the resurrection's results? Life and unity, what we've just been talking about. We rejoice in the resurrection's results of life and unity. And today we get to rejoice through baptism. Baptism announces our union with Christ, life and death and resurrection it proclaims in breathtaking beauty that those who trust in Christ are dead to sin and alive to God, cleansed from all unrighteousness. That we are, that, that they are free from the fear of physical death and the consequences of spiritual death. They have a hope of eternal life with God and the power to live a God-honoring life in the present. Not only that, baptism also announces a union with the church of Jesus Christ. It says that the person being baptized is not only a child of God through faith, but also a member of his family, a member of his worldwide church, a a member also of a local body of believers. I'm not sure if you knew this, but Ian wants to get baptized. (laughs) We've been excited about this and he, as as he is uh, he he and, uh, and and as he is he and he and all who are a part of the family of God rejoice in the life that Christ has given him through the gifts of repentance and faith such that fear is gone and we rejoice that that is our brother in Christ for all eternity he's a member of God's eternal kingdom made of people from every generation and from every nation this this baptism that we that we perform it proclaims the truth of salvation and it speaks life if you're in Christ i would invite you as we witness this to allow it to draw you deeper into the joy of the gospel into deeper resolve to to love one another and in deeper resolve too to spread this truth to a world that is fearful of death and filled with division And if you're outside of Christ, then my hope is that today is a day of salvation for you. I want to pray, then we're going to sing, and as we sing, we're going to get ready to have our baptism. So, uh, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the hope of the resurrection. A hope that frees us from the fear of death. It makes us alive, a hope that gets rid of division and makes us one in Christ. Lord, these are things that we think we can do on our own. We think we can beat death. We think that we can create unity, but it's something that only you can do, and it takes the power of God through death and resurrection and the sending of your Spirit to accomplish these things. So we thank you that this is a truth that we believe, and it's a truth that you're working in us and in our church well, we rejoice today at the opportunity to witness Ian's baptism, a representation of the change that you have done in, were inwardly in him. And so we are excited and ask that you would strengthen our faith through this. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, this is our friend Ian. Many of you heard his testimony recently. So encouraging to hear. Uh, hear that and to see so many folks that have been a part of him growing in his faith. And um, yeah, I don't have much else to say beyond that. Um, you've heard his testimony. I've asked him to, to read a, a response from the Heidelberg Catechism um, that is a profession of what he believes and a beautiful one at that. So the first question of that catechism is, Ian, what is your only comfort in life and death? My own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head indeed. All things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of of eternal life. It makes me heartily willing willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Amen. So, Ian, based upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to His command, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father. You knew I was going to do this. (laughs) And the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of Jesus' death. raised in the likeness of his resurrection.